0: Willie, harry Stee, harry dick john harry three one two three neds richard two henry's four five six then who edwards four five dick the bad harry's twain and ned the lad mary bessie yes it's bessie again elizabeth the first part two we left elizabeth at the end of the last episode just as she came to the throne and we're going to pick up now and cover her actual reign and there's a lot to fit in She reigned for 45 years. She is in the top 10 longest reigning monarchs. And she is one of those monarchs who has a period of history named after her, the Elizabethan Age. Seen by many as a golden age, but as we've touched upon, if you were a peasant at the time, you didn't necessarily see it as that much of a golden age. But she did at least bring a level of stability to the country. After all the ups and downs of the Tudor period and the wars of the roses before that ups and downs perhaps making light of what was a pretty appalling time so Elizabeth's reign is seen as being this glorious reign but all reigns all lives end in failure the ultimate failure of death and all great kingdoms wither and by the end of her reign Elizabeth was frail and shrunken she wore a red wig and plastered her face with this thick white makeup she was very much living off past glories and you could say she sort of clung on beyond her time but she had to she had no option she had no heir to pass it on to to some extent it was like everything ends with me of course it it didn't and on her deathbed she did have to agree to an heir but when she came to the throne, she was a young woman. She was 25, full of energy, fired up with wanting to get things straightened out. And the first thing she did was she kind of drained the swamp. It was out with the old and in with the new. She got rid of a lot of Mary's supporters at court and she pushed through Protestantism as a way to cement her power base and to exclude the reactionary conservatives and she put together this very strong, very competent royal court, this Privy Council such as the man who became her right-hand man, William Cecil, and Sir Francis Walsingham, who was her principal secretary uh, and also her great spymaster, and also the likes of John Dee, her astrologer, who was also working behind the scenes, making sure that Elizabeth was safe on the throne. She also had a lot of powerful ladies at court, and very much her domestic court. the, the, The people around her were largely women. She had her own female privy chamber. And these were noble women. These were women who understood about power, and they understood the workings of a royal court. And she kept her court fairly solid and fairly loyal through her life. Compared to Henry, very few of those people at court were arrested or executed. And she became fated as Gloriana the Virgin Queen. But we mustn't let that idea blind us to the fact that it really was very difficult for her being a woman, being a woman on the throne, negotiating all that. It hadn't gone enormously well with the two women before her. Lady Jane Grey had lasted nine days. Her sister Mary her half-sister Mary, had lasted five years and in that time had managed by the end to upset a lot of people. Um, In Scotland, you had Mary, Queen of Scots, coming to the throne. She made a right hash of it. So Elizabeth is there in England and it's difficult for her. And a lot of the decisions she had to make, publicly, internationally, but also privately, came down to the fact that as a woman she was vulnerable and everybody goes on and on about the idea of she never married she stayed a virgin whatever and it comes down to the fact that it was too dangerous for her to marry because as soon as she marries a man there's a danger that he wants to be king as Philip had done when he married Mary that he wants to take over and he will then stoke the flames of rivalry amongst all the other men at court Why didn't Elizabeth marry one of them instead? So she's having to negotiate a very tricky life right until the end. And, you know, for the most part, these men around her at court supported her, respected her. They could tell that she was strong minded and intelligent, but occasionally she was the victim of Of these men trying to tell her what to do, they would often say, well, you don't want to get involved with this, it being too much for a woman's knowledge. Or presenting things to her as the will of God, which um, on biblical principles, only men are allowed to interpret. And she would be forever coming back at them saying you know, I am already married to the kingdom. I am the mother of the kingdom. I'm the wife of the kingdom. And she had this coronation ring, which she displayed as if it was a wedding ring to try and push her side of things. She also had this problem of religion to contend with. Henry VIII had brought in this cataclysmic, this seismic shift of cutting ties with the Catholic Church, bringing in this new idea of Protestantism, telling people they have to worship in a different way. Mary then sort of in a slightly reactionary way tried to change everything back there are modern parallels in this it's interesting the people of England the ordinary people of England for what a thousand years have been Christians they've been worshipping their god in a certain way and they've been told the pope's the head of the church and this is how you do a service and you have the mass and you have the communion and that's what you do suddenly someone comes in and says no 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 that's all completely wrong you do that we'll put you to death this is the new way of doing things. and Everybody has to say, oh, oh, I didn't realise what there's a new way of doing things. And the way we've always been has changed. OK, and they go along to the new way. And then someone else comes in and says, no, 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 you're completely wrong. We're doing that. You can be killed. It's this imposition of quite extreme ideas onto people and nobody knows how to negotiate it. So and we can see that happening quite a lot with certain things that are going on today People are being told the ideas they've held for over a thousand years are wrong and they're in a sense heretical. Now, we're not setting fire to people anymore, but this does lead to confusion, anger and aggression from both sides. And nobody knows quite what to think or believe anymore. But Elizabeth's problem is balancing the idea that the country is now Protestant, with not wanting to upset the apple cart too much, not wanting to upset too many of the Catholics, because a lot of the powerful people around the country are still leaning towards Catholicism. And she doesn't want to upset them too much because she can never feel that safe on the throne. So she sort of said, look, if you want to carry on being a Catholic, stay out of sight, do it in private. I'm not going to interfere with that. You can commune with your God however you like. But in public, we are all now Protestants. So all through her reign, Elizabeth is juggling these matters, trying to keep everyone happy. And she's also juggling various suitors. We looked at this a little bit in the last episode and we saw that the chief among them in England is Robert Dudley. And so many romantic historical novels have been written about Elizabeth Uh, and in many of them this has been presented as a full-on love affair between her and Dudley particularly by Sir Walter Scott. So much of our idea of history in the past comes down to books written by Sir Walter Scott where he basically made a lot of stuff up but to start with it looked like Elizabeth might have well been considering marrying Dudley but unfortunately he was married to someone else And we looked at this in the last episode. Dudley said he'd almost grown up with Elizabeth, that he'd been almost part of her family since she was eight. But then he marries this woman, Amy, which Elizabeth is not very happy with. And Elizabeth sort of keeps saying, oh, you know, if things have been different, maybe I'd marry you. And perhaps she's doing this. Maybe she's just playing the game here, keeping him sweet, stringing him along. But whatever the case, Dudley's wife, Amy, mysteriously dies in a fall. Falls down the stairs. Now, was that suicide? Was it murder? Was it an accident? We don't know. Dudley was acquitted of any blame and he's sort of now saying to Elizabeth, look, okay, I'm here. I'm free. You can marry me now. And Elizabeth says, oh, I don't know. I'm not sure. Either she had cold feet by this point or she'd been nobbled by the men around her saying, you can't marry Dudley. This will not be a popular marriage or maybe as i said she'd never intended to marry him in the first place certainly one of the next things she does is she tries to set up a marriage between him and mary queen of scots i guess thinking okay i'm going to have my inside man in in scotland and he will be able to ostensibly take over as king there rather than here dudley's not very keen on this mary queen of scots doesn't seem very keen on this but in order to make dudley a better marriage prospect for mary she elevates him makes him Baron Denby and then the Earl of Leicester but as I say this marriage never happens because Mary Queen of Scots marries her cousin Henry Stuart Lord Darnley in 1565 and as I say we're going to concentrate more on that in our episode on Mary Queen of Scots but suffice to say that didn't go very well. The other potential marriage prospect, the guy who seemed to have the best prospects, is this French guy, the Duke of Anjou, who Elizabeth called her frog. And this is potentially a political marriage. England and France have this very, very difficult relationship. The French are always siding with the Scots. They have this thing, the Scots, called the Old Alliance. They are traditional allies against the English. So Elizabeth is having to contend with the French. Now, there's also problems in the Netherlands, and we've seen just how important the Netherlands were to England as a trading partner. A huge amount of money is being made in the trade, particularly with Antwerp, mainly on the English side with the wool trade. And this trade is very valuable to, to England, to Elizabeth, now, at this time, the Low Countries, Holland, Belgium, Flanders, whatever, were part of the Holy Roman Empire, the Habsburg Empire. What had happened was the powerful Duchy of Burgundy in northeastern France, that had been such a rival to the power of the French monarchs, had massively expanded and taken over the Low Countries. I know there are there are parallels with what we've been talking about with Mary I of England with Elizabeth I and Mary Queen of Scots this idea that if a woman comes to power the territory she rules is vulnerable to being taken over by marriage to a dominant man and this is exactly what happened to burgundy burgundy and the habsburgs had been at war in the 15th century and had reached a bit of a of a stalemate when Emperor Frederick managed to force Charles the Bold of Burgundy to marry his daughter Mary of Burgundy to Frederick's son Maximilian, the end result of which was that the Habsburgs took control of the Low Countries. And they're not entirely popular. There is unrest. Protestantism has taken hold in the Low Countries in a big way. This is kind of the the part of Europe where this whole movement started. And the locals are rebelling against the Catholic Habsburgs. Elizabeth doesn't want trade with Antwerp to be disrupted, but there's a danger it's all going to kick off and go to pot. And Elizabeth is being urged by some people, including Dudley, now the Earl of Leicester, to do something about it, to go and help the Dutch. So perhaps Elizabeth is thinking a marriage with the French, an alliance with them, would help to push back against the Habsburgs, because the French are no more happy about what the Habsburgs are doing than the English. So you have all of these problems swilling about in Europe. And of course, to the south is the southern part of the Habsburg Empire, centered in Spain under King Philip, who was... I guess you could say she was Elizabeth's brother-in-law. He had been married to Mary. Now that Mary's dead, he's kicked out. He has no influence in England. And so the Spanish, being Habsburgs, are now probably a bigger threat to England than the French. So Elizabeth is, I don't know, leading on, the Duke of Anjou, the frog. And when Dudley, the Earl of Leicester, gets fed up of waiting for Elizabeth and remarries a woman, Lettice Devereux, Uh, formerly Lettice Knowles, or Lettice Nollies, um, uh, however you want to pronounce it. She had been married to the Count of Essex, so she is now the Countess of Essex. So when Leicester marries her, he is now Leicester and Essex. And on the back of that, Elizabeth invites the Duke of Anjou to the English court, where they seem to get on very well. And maybe she's sort of saying to Leicester, look... Maybe she's sort of rubbing that in Leicester's face. But in the end, she doesn't want to go through with the marriage to Anjou either. And it's at this point that she seems to come up with the idea of saying, I am the Virgin Queen. I will never marry. None of you men are good enough for me. I am married to my country. And this goes down well as a sort of piece of propaganda. Uh, She has a royal progress into East Anglia in 1578. And the the locals put on all these plays and shows and singing and dancing, celebrating the idea of her virginity um, and claiming she's like the Virgin Mary and Diana the Huntress from Greek mythology who uh, stayed virginal and shot men dead with her arrows. So she'd sort of come upon this idea that if she says she will never marry, she will be a virgin. It will make her stronger. It will, in some ways, make her more manlike. She will not give birth to children. She will not be the mother of children. But this, of course, does mean that there is a permanent problem with who's going to be her successor then. So just to backtrack a bit, in 1562, she'd come down with smallpox and had been very close to death and the men at court had got together and started discussing who would be her successor, which Elizabeth was extremely pissed off about when she got up from her sickbed and rejoined the court. But the two chief contenders seem to have been Catherine Grey and Mary, Queen of Scots. Now, Catherine Grey is a sister of Lady Jane Grey. So I guess we've had this idea if Lady Jane Grey can make it to the throne. She has a pretty good claim. So her sister, Catherine Grey, would have the same claim. And Mary, Queen of Scots, as they say, is descended from King Henry VIII's sister, Margaret. So these figures are there as the potential next in line. Mary completely messes things up in Scotland. She has got the same problems as Elizabeth in that she is a woman and people don't want a woman on the throne. And Mary is the only surviving child of James V who died fairly young and had become Queen of Scotland in 1542 when only six days old. And as I say we'll be dealing with this properly in her episode but essentially she falls out with her first husband Lord Darnley who is murdered. The building where he's staying in is blown up and he's found half naked in the garden, dead. And very soon after this Mary married one of the people who murdered him, Lord James Hepburn, or Heben, the fourth Earl of Bothwell. And he seems quite a rackety figure, and everybody is aghast at this marriage, not just because they don't particularly like him, but the fact that even though he got away with it, They all knew he'd killed Mary's first husband. But they have this strongly Protestant wedding, this Calvinist wedding, uh, because Scotland seems to be like England. People are very strongly leaning towards the Protestant faith rather than the Catholic faith. So she thinks if she has this Protestant wedding, she'll shore things up. But the heavily Puritan Protestants turn against her, particularly John Knox, this misogynistic firebrand preacher. There's an uprising in Scotland Mary is forced to abdicate in favour of her child James who she'd had with Lord Darnley before he was blown up and she remarried to Bothwell. And down in England Elizabeth is watching all this aghast, watching just how badly Mary had screwed things up in Scotland. So Mary does not look to Elizabeth like a good candidate to be England's next monarch which meant that the next best bet for someone to succeed her is Jane Grey's sister Catherine. But then Catherine went behind Elizabeth's back and secretly married one of the Seymour family, Jane Seymour being Henry VIII's second wife. So Catherine, who should have had a properly arranged political marriage that Elizabeth would have arranged, has rebelled in some ways. And it seems that Elizabeth never forgave Catherine for this. And so she became relegated down the ranks of possible successors. The fallout from all this is that Mary Queen of Scots essentially has to go on the run. She has to get out of Scotland before she's thrown into a dungeon up there. She comes down to England, hoping that Elizabeth will look after her. And Elizabeth just really doesn't know what to do with Mary. So she puts her into one of her castles, essentially under house arrest, And for the rest of her life, for the next 20 years, Mary is a prisoner of Elizabeth who is dealing with so many other problems of her own. So there's been this big change in England set in motion by King Henry VIII and his right-hand man, the the tough guy Thomas Cromwell. There's been a move towards centralised government with, with pulling all the power into the royal court. And this has alienated the powerful northern families in particular. We're back to the good old Percy's and the Neville's who are used to being the lords of the north and essentially, you know, we have this north-south divide and they don't get too much involved at this time with what's going on down in London. They just carry on doing what they want. But under Henry, through Mary, Edward and particularly in Elizabeth's reign, they are losing their power and they are getting fed up with it. The power has shifted all around the country from regional institutions to the royal court. And in 1569, there's a rising of the north, which is this attempt by these northern lords, who were also still very Catholic, to depose Elizabeth and replace her with Mary, Queen of Scots. The rising is unsuccessful. They start with 700 men, attack a couple of castles, don't really get very far They had hoped for, I suppose, a sort of national uprising, but it never happened. Elizabeth was popular enough at this point and people were confident enough that she was secure that they didn't want to upset the apple cart. There were a few pockets around the country that that did rise up and the the Pope waded in to try and offer his support. He excommunicated Queen Elizabeth and said she is no longer Queen of England She has no right to be on the throne because the Catholic Church had never recognised the annulment of Henry VIII's marriage to Catherine of Aragon, which meant that Elizabeth was essentially illegitimate. And the Pope now makes this a thing. He sets it in stone, excommunicates Elizabeth. But even this wasn't enough to bring Elizabeth down. She fought her position and managed to steer a path through all of this. She was particularly helped by people like Walsingham in court who were working incredibly hard. They, they developed this huge spy network and infiltrated all of these Catholic households. And so they were feeding back enough information that Elizabeth was able to remain secure on the throne. The next of these Catholic plots against her after the Rising of the North is the Ridolfi plot, when an Italian banker tried to have Elizabeth removed from the throne and replaced by Mary. And he managed to get Thomas Howard, the Duke of Norfolk, involved. This is the son of the great Duke of Norfolk, who had been so influential through Henry's reign. But again, the plot went nowhere and Thomas Howard had to flee. These various small plots kept igniting. In the end, Elizabeth just couldn't take it anymore and she was forced to have Mary Queen of Scots executed. And the Dean of Peterborough, Richard Fletcher, who was the uh, church's representative at the execution, cried out as Mary's head fell into the bucket, so perish all the Queen's enemies. But it still left the problem of the succession, which we'll come back to at the end when we get to Elizabeth's death. Because we've got to get some more history in here. As I mentioned before, Spain has become a much bigger threat to England than France um, because the Habsburgs are sort of have, have Europe in this sort of uh, pincer movement, I suppose. Uh, they're expanding and, and crushing the weaker nations. And Elizabeth is always being urged to go in and help in the Netherlands, to send an army and She holds off, partly for economic reasons. It's very expensive mounting a cross-channel invasion and sending an army across. And Elizabeth is dealing with very tricky economic problems she'd inherited from her sister Mary. There's this mini ice age. It's cold, it's wet, crops are failing, animals aren't thriving, the the economy is moribund, the trade with the Netherlands is, is badly affected. Elizabeth needs money coming in and the Spanish have vast amounts of money coming in because of their territories in South America. That huge, huge shipments of gold are crossing the Atlantic. Now, as we saw in the episode on Mary, she didn't want to do anything to upset the Spanish. She wouldn't allow British ships to attack Spanish ships or to go to America and plunder the Spanish territories there because she felt this strong alliance with the Spanish. She was married to the King of Spain. She couldn't be seen to be disrupting this at all. Elizabeth has no such qualms and she sends these well, they're called privateers, but essentially they're pirates. They are hired pirates who were sent across the Atlantic to start attacking the Spanish and stealing their gold. People like Francis Drake and John Hawkins, who was a vice-admiral and also treasurer of the Navy, but was also, as I say, on the side, essentially a pirate. I have to say that John Hawkins was also one of the key figures in getting England involved in the Atlantic slave trade. So anyway, these privateers start attacking Spanish shipping and manage to bring home vast amounts of stolen gold, which Philip of Spain is not at all happy about. One of the other things that Elizabeth did was to finance Francis Drake to circumnavigate the globe, which he did between 1577 and 1580, And this wasn't just for geographical reasons, for knowledge. It was also obviously looking at seeing if there were new trade routes that could open up. But it was also a sort of snub to the Spanish for saying, we own everything to the West. It's all of ours. Francis Drake was saying, no, look, there's more. And you don't own that. So there was a political dimension to it all. So, as I say, Elizabeth was financing all this and she was also financing his pirate voyages. And when Drake returned from... His trip round the world, he was knighted, became Sir Francis Drake, and Elizabeth was paid back handsomely. She still didn't think it was enough to finance this invasion of the Netherlands. She didn't really think it was going to be worth it. But also, her potential marriage partner, the Duke of Anjou, died, and his brother Henry didn't seem to be interested in making any kind of alliance with the English, so there's not much chance of anybody in France supporting the English. Large parts of the Netherlands had revolted against Spanish rule, Habsburg rule, but the Habsburgs were coming back at them pretty heavily. Now, many in England, including, as I say, Robert Dudley, the Earl of Leicester, were really pushing for a move into the Netherlands. He worked very hard to get close with William of Orange, who was the main leader of the rebels, this, this, this Protestant opposition to the Habsburg Empire. And he was saying, come over, please help me against the Spanish. So Leicester formed his own sort of personal alliance with William. But in 1584, William, the Prince of Orange, was murdered, uh, which led to chaos. And it really looked like the whole region could fall apart. And then a year later, in 1585... And the Habsburgs came in heavily and took over Antwerp under this guy, the Duke of Parma, who was an Italian duke who was working as a general for the Habsburgs. So Elizabeth had to do something. And she did send in an expeditionary force under Leicester. And the people in the Netherlands were so pleased to have him there that he'd arrived and remembered this great alliance he'd had with William of Orange, that they basically offered him to run the country. They said, can you be our governor general? And, and Leicester comes back delighted, saying, look, I'm going to be governor general of, of the Netherlands. And Elizabeth is appalled at the idea. The last thing she wants is to be fully responsible for the Netherlands. And Leicester has done this behind her back. This hasn't been her idea. This has been his idea. And there's a big falling out between the two of them. But as I say, there is still a small English army there. And then things go from bad to worse when Philip of Spain now takes over the whole of Portugal. Portugal, despite being a small country, is a very powerful maritime nation. You've got this even more massive power block in, in the Iberian Peninsula. And now the Duke of Parma starts amassing a huge army in the Low Countries. And it soon becomes clear that the Spanish are preparing to invade England from there. But it's very, very difficult getting an army across the Channel, particularly when the English have developed a very, very powerful navy. So Philip of Spain comes up with this idea of building this massive fleet in Spain and Portugal, sailing it up into the Channel, up to the Netherlands, helping another fleet there to cross the Channel, acting as a sort of um, escort, like escorting a convoy as the Duke of Parma will bring all these Habsburg troops and invade England and Philip calls his fleet an Armada. This is the great Spanish Armada. They are delayed by a year when Sir Francis Drake nips in with a guerrilla raid into Cadiz and destroys much of this nascent fleet, also burning all the staves that had been prepared to make barrels for fresh water and also taking a lot of plunder, returns to England with £140,000. And Elizabeth, again, being a major investor of this undertaking, manages to take £40,000 of it for herself. So this invasion fleet, the Armada, is put back by a year. And that little escapade it's something that schoolboys always learnt about because it was a sort of typical example of plucky little England going in and kicking the big boys up the backside. And it became known as the singeing of the King of Spain's beard. And it's certainly something that I was taught about at school. I don't think school children these days are taught very much about the singeing of the King of Spain's beard. I'm sure if I asked my three sons what it was, they would have no idea. But that's what it was. It was... An expeditionary raid to delay the sailing of the Armada. But eventually it did set sail. But Philip, for some reason, gave the command of the Armada to Duke of Medina Sidonia. And he's an aristocrat. So it seems to be, oh, we better give it to the poshest man we can, despite the fact that he had no naval experience. So he's put in charge of the Armada. 130 ships carrying 18,000 men. They set sail from Lisbon. They come up the west coast of the Iberian Peninsula, along the north coast, up past France, up into the Channel. And this is sometimes portrayed as like this huge, mighty fleet coming in against a sort of small, unprepared ships of the British. There's a sort of Battle of Britain feel to it. But in fact, the British Navy was more up to date than the Spanish, and they were very, very heavily armed. Uh, And the British Navy was also better trained and led by very experienced naval commanders like Lord Charles Howard, Sir John Hawkins, Sir Francis Drake, Walter Raleigh and and Martin Frobisher. They harassed the Spanish all the way. And even at one point, send in eight fireships to get in among the Spanish ships and and start setting fire to them. These fireships packed with explosives. So the Spanish fleet don't get anywhere near being able to pick up the Duke of Parma, who's waiting patiently with his troops. And they are forced all the way through the channel and out the other side. And they go up the east coast, up into the North Sea, where there were terrible storms. And they're blown all the way up. And they, they think, Christ, the only thing we can do is we'll go up round Scotland and down past Ireland to get back. But they are harried all the way. The ships are wrecked all the way. It gets worse and worse for them until out of the original 130, only 60 ships make it back to Spain and about 15,000 men died along the way. So it was a complete disaster. And whilst these small English naval units played a huge part in it, the weather, or if you like, God, played a bigger part in destroying this threat. But Elizabeth made the most of it. She goes to inspect her troops who are waiting for this Spanish invasion at Tilbury Docks to tell them, it's all over, there is no threat. She has this suit of silver armour made. She has a sword at her side and she's riding on a white horse. It's a bit of pantomime, really, but it seems to have been effective. And she makes this famous speech. First of all, praising her subjects. The great men and women of England, particularly the men who have, who have fought off this threat, her boys. And she creates a special medal, the Armada Medal, to celebrate this. And then she goes on to say, I know I have the body but of a weak and feeble woman, but I have the heart and stomach of a king and of a king of England too, and take foul scorn that Palmer or any other prince of Europe should dare to invade the borders of my realm. And this has gone down like Shakespeare's martial speeches once more unto the breach dear friends and, and Churchill's wartime speeches. We will fight them on the beaches as one of those great patriotic, jingoistic British pieces of rhetoric. And there she is, this this military figure, like Margaret Thatcher in a tank, or later on, Liz Truss in a tank. Uh, And she's become the model for every tinpot British female would-be autocrat ever since, be it Thatcher, Liz Truss, Theresa May, Suella Braverman, thinking, I'm going to make some great speech at conference and everyone will think I'm the new Queen Elizabeth, though none of them came even close. So that first Armada sailed in 1588, but it wasn't the last. The Spanish made three more attempts that all ended just as badly. And Robert Dudley, now 56 years old, didn't serve on any of the English ships during that first attempted invasion, but he was put in charge of the English army and he rowed alongside Elizabeth to Tilbury and he was at her side when she made her great speech. But he sadly died soon after, and quite suddenly, of malaria or perhaps stomach cancer. We're not quite sure, but it deeply affected Elizabeth. She took to her rooms for several days until one of her ministers had to break down the doors to get to her to see that she was all right. Her speech at Tilbury was probably her finest moment, and she went into a decline after this. Dudley was gone and over the next few years she lost many other valuable and important men like Sydney and Walsingham. The war with Spain rumbled on. The English navy mounted an equally abortive counter-attack. Elizabeth began to lose patience with her commanders who she, she thought were either reckless or incompetent. And things weren't going well at home. There were further bad harvests. There was high taxation, rampant inflation. The plague kept returning. And and real wages were probably at the lowest they'd been for centuries, which inevitably led to a rise in crime and begging on the streets, uh, not helped by unpaid soldiers returning from the wars. Nothing ever changes, does it? Although, of course, we must remember that homelessness is a lifestyle choice. I mean, I guess in a way, the the, the ongoing threat from the Spanish gave Elizabeth a handy common enemy, a nice distraction from domestic problems. It was was much easier to blame everything on the foreigners. But really, by this point, she'd become a pretty ineffective ruler. And with Leicester gone, she transferred her affections to his stepson, Robert Devereux, second Earl of Essex. He was what you might call a firebrand. Reckless and glorious, Rather like Mary, Queen of Scots, second husband, Bothwell, he was quite rackety. But Elizabeth flirted with him. He flirted with her. And then ultimately, in 1601, he betrayed her. Having fallen into disgrace and thinking the Queen too old and feeble to hold on to power, he mounted a coup against her. But it was badly planned, undermanned and and doomed to failure. Essex was caught and beheaded at the age of 34. Now, Essex's rebellion was the last excitement for Elizabeth. And at her final parliament in 1602, she gave another famous speech that summed up her reign, saying she was delighted that God hath made me his instrument to maintain his truth and glory and his kingdom from dishonour, damage, tyranny and oppression. Playing the nasty foreigners wanting to invade and stop us being British card there. And she went on, and though you may have had and may have many mightier and wiser princes sitting in this seat, yet you never had nor shall have any that will love you better. Which, in some ways, I think Margaret Thatcher kind of echoed in her final speech when she was kicked out of power. We're leaving Downing Street for the last time, after eleven and a half wonderful years, and we're very happy that we leave the United Kingdom in a very, very much better state than when we came here eleven and a half years ago. Elizabeth was slowly beaten down by illness. She had hot flushes. The black dog of depression sunk her into melancholy and the stress of the succession argument sunk her even further. She had a slow end and in 1603 died from perhaps bronchitis, perhaps pneumonia, perhaps even cancer. We'll never know because she never allowed a physician to examine her. It was one of the things that led to the nasty, gossipy rumours that she was really a man. And when she died, there were at least 12 people with some kind of a claim to the throne. Nearly all of them were women, but predictably a man was chosen. Phew! Huge relief! We've got a bloke back on the throne. This bloke being King James the Sixth of Scotland, son of Mary Queen of Scots, who became James I of England. I'm sure a lot of Scottish people thought that this was a great day for Scotland, a Scottish king on the throne of England. But of course it actually meant the end of Scotland as an autonomous country, since both England and Scotland would be ruled as a single entity from London. So please join me after the break to discuss Elizabeth's reign with Tracy Borman. Welcome back to Good Queen Bess Part 2, and welcome back to the wonderful Tracy Borman, who's written extensively about the Tudors and whose last book was about Anne Boleyn and Elizabeth. So, Tracy, we've said goodbye to Elizabeth and we've said goodbye to the last of the Tudors. The direct royal line died with Elizabeth. And you mentioned in the last episode that earlier on in her reign, when she'd contracted smallpox, her ruling council all assumed she was going to die and set about deciding who would succeed her. And then when she got better, she laid into them for making decisions behind her back. But was their plan significantly different to the ultimate plan that Elizabeth drew up on her deathbed when she actually was dying? So the council were divided between Mary,
2: Queen of Scots, and Lady Catherine Grey. So a sister of Lady Jane Grey, both with Catholic leanings, But I think Catherine had the greater support because she was at least a homegrown candidate. We weren't that keen on the Scots. In fact, Henry VIII's will had forbidden any Scottish descendants from inheriting the crown of England. So Catherine really was the front runner. And I don't think Elizabeth ever forgave her. Catherine ended up ultimately in the Tower and starving herself to death and and had a pretty miserable existence after that.
0: Was that not also partly because she'd secretly married another one of the bloody Seymours, Edward Seymour, son of Edward Seymour? So another blood
2: claimant, really, the Seymours being, of course, um, related to Jane Seymour, Henry VIII's third Mm. queen. So this was a double threat. And then Catherine went and had a son and then another son whilst a prisoner in the tower. Clearly, they hadn't been kept separate, her and her husband. Um, And so... It really, Elizabeth was was both furious but also very threatened by Catherine. She didn't execute her, but as I say, Catherine sort of effectively ended her own life. She went on hunger strike and, and died at the age of just, just 28, so a, a tragic end okay. for her. Well,
0: most everybody in this period had a tragic end.
2: Yes, not too many happy endings, actually, yeah. All- except perhaps for Elizabeth herself, really.
0: Yeah, although she was a bit of a mess by the end, I guess. <laughs> Oh, but then that feels like treason, but that's life, really, isn't it? <laughs> uh, yeah, but I guess all told, Elizabeth had a pretty good life. Um, things in the end went fairly well for her. Mm. But I mean, in terms of actually ruling the country, the day to day business of it all, how closely involved was she, and how much was she leaving mm. it to the Privy Council like her father, Henry VIII? seems to have done
2: well she was blessed with some very very able advisors william cecil lord burley um was really her right hand man um there were others um his, his son robert cecil in the later years kind of took over um that role walsingham francis walsingham was elizabeth's great spy master and i think he pretty much saved her life on multiple occasions because he was you know always on the lookout for these catholic plots um but Elizabeth didn't just kind of pack up and go home and let these men get on with it. Um she was absolutely at the helm and uh, and made it clear that, you know, she was the the queen bee effectively in the in this hive of male courtiers and it was an image that she really played on so that there was this kind of intermingling of politics and pleasure and she gave her advisors pet names. She was a great <laughs> flirt, just like her mother. So you know, set- she sounds like Margaret Thatcher. <laughs> Odd. Oh no. <laughs> don't say that. That's <laughs> you don't you're gonna put me off
0: her. <laughs> so what so what were these sort of nicknames that she was coming up so with? She then? called Burley
2: spirit, um, and she called her great favourite Robert Dudley. He was her eyes. She loved sort of, you know, tickling uh one of them on the on the neck uh when she was conferring a knighthood and You know, she she played up to this role as being the most desirable bride, not just at court, but in Mm. Europe. And she kept up that pretense as it became well into old age, you know, when really she probably knew she was no longer the most desirable bride. But hey, let's not that. Get in the way. So
0: perhaps Joan Collins would be better analogy than, than Margaret Thatcher. <laughs> this
2: isn't going well, Charlie. <laughs> already, you know, Margaret Thatcher, Joan Collins, these are not the sort of figureheads that I had in mind when talking about <laughs> Elizabeth, really. She was a clever woman and she was very good, I think, at playing off her male courtiers against each other, but also um, playing them at their own game. Because she Mm. knew what they thought of her when she came to the throne. She knew what a misogynistic world this was. So she played on that. And when they were putting her under pressure to make decisions, she would suddenly throw up her hands and say, oh, but I'm a woman. I can't possibly make a decision. You're going to have to give me more time And, and that kind of thing. And she knew exactly what she was doing.
0: But she does seem to have also slightly suffered from a slight touch of mansplaining at court. Wasn't there some incident where Cecil said, oh, you can't give her these documents, she, she yes. really wouldn't understand them?
2: Yes, there was certainly mansplaining. And it was actually Robert Cecil who described Elizabeth as being sometimes more than a man, but less than a woman. Uh, in other words, he admitted she was probably cleverer than most of the men at court. But in so, in so being, uh, she somehow lacked femininity so there was a, it was a slightly backhanded compliment but yeah she was patronized and particularly when it came to war because what would a mm. woman know about going to war so i think it was genuinely one of her finest hours when she gave that tremendous armada speech at, at yeah admittedly the real danger of the armada had passed by that point yeah but she was being a very inspirational military leader at that point as well um so she's greatly to be praised for that
0: Now, we talked in the last episode about the image she was projecting of being both the mother of the nation and also, at the same time, the virgin queen. She was this sort of unassailable, idealised figure. Now, how much of that was true and how much of it was propaganda? And and, and I think I probably know what your answer will be to this. But where do you stand on all the salacious gossip that was flying around about her? You know, oh, no way, she was a virgin and she was banging everybody left, right and (laughs) centre.
2: Well, there is that um, side of the argument. uh, And certainly you can kind of see, if you believe in no smoke without fire, she was um, (laughs) a great flirt, just like her mother, Anne Boleyn, by the way. She loved to play the game of courtly love and be admired and adored. Um, But she knew that that game of courtly love had been deadly for her mother, Mm. ultimately inspiring the plot against Anne Boleyn. So she did keep the boundaries much I personally believe she really was the Virgin Queen. Now, one of the strongest pieces of evidence for that, I mentioned that she almost died of smallpox just four years into her reign. Well, when she was on what she thought was her deathbed, she summoned a priest to her and in a very kind of ironically Catholic way, sort of made a confession. And she said, look, nothing improper has ever passed between me and Robert Dudley, her closest favourite. Right. Um, and I, I just don't think she would have risked it. There was no great role model for marriage or childbirth from her life before becoming queen. And she also didn't want to give mm. any power away, frankly. So I do think she was the Virgin Queen. And then on the other side, of course, you've got, to counter all the rumors that she had all these love children and plenty of affairs. Then there's, there are the rumors saying that she had some physical impediment. She couldn't, you know, right. couldn't be with a man, or she actually really was a man. That That's one of my favorite rumors uh, that she died as a child and was switched from the closest
0: looking child around who happened to be a boy. And was that a story that? Arose at the time? No. During her reign? It was really later
2: and it became very popular thanks to Brown Stoker, um, author. Ah, right. And he wrote it up in his book, Famous Imposters*, And he <laughs> made quite a convincing go at it, you know, sort of claiming that Henry VIII hardly saw his daughter. So he didn't recognize the fact that she'd been switched for a boy and pointing to these various other things. Top of the list being, look, why else wouldn't she marry? Uh, She had to really be a man. And why else was she so successful? Again, she had to be a man.
0: (laughs) And wasn't there some young man who appeared at various European courts or or, or possibly only the Spanish court um, claiming to be her son via Robert Dudley?
2: Yes, Arthur Dudley. He showed up in Spain, um, I think, quite conveniently, because Spain was always um, Elizabeth's mortal enemy. And so he knew he was going to get her. Uh, A willing ear in Spain to to, um, claiming who he was. But again, there's no real evidence for that beyond the fact we know Elizabeth and Dudley were close. I personally believe she she loved Dudley, but never had any intention of of taking it further than that. Then later
0: on, she she seems to have this thing for his stepson, Essex. (laughs) I mean, what's that all about? Yeah, she went from Leicester to Essex.
2: She did. Gosh. So, yes, um, Essex, he was the, the son of Elizabeth's great love rival, Latisse Knolls, who had married Robert Dudley. Um, he was her son by her first marriage, Robert Devre. Now, he was more than 30 years younger than Elizabeth. Mm. Um, but just as Anjou was really her last hope uh, on the international scene, so Essex was really her last great favourite. And he was a very audacious man. He was definitely her type. When you look at the the portraits of the men associated with Elizabeth, apart from poor old Eric of Sweden, who was blonde, <laughs> they're all dark and bearded. and you know, So gorgeous. classic bad boys. Exactly. She loved the bad boy. Essex was the baddest boy of all. <laughs> and um, he was arrogant. He believed that he could literally overstep the mark and he would always be forgiven. But he came to grief when... Uh, One morning, he thought, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to burst into the Queen's bedchamber before she's up and dressed and surprise her. (laughs) Bad idea, um, because by now it was taking Elizabeth's ladies two hours every morning to get her looking as she did in court with the wigs and the white makeup and all the rest of it. And he burst into her bedchamber and he saw this little old lady on the bed and he didn't (laughs) recognise her. And then he did. (laughs) And thought, oh God! And then it showed on his face his horror at this oh. this sort of hairless, toothless um, woman that who he called himself a crooked carcass. He kind of scarpered oh, and went and laughed really at the crooked carcass of the queen. So who did he? He must have written that down. It was that a letter or something. You it read was to reported someone? that he'd said that. To his oh, friends. it was
0: reported because,
2: of course, Essex had many enemies at court, yes. were jealous of his favour with the queen. Well, he came to a sticky end, not just because of that incident, but he rather messed things up in Ireland where Elizabeth had sent him to command her forces. And then, mm. I mean, this is just one of my favourite Tudor anecdotes, because then he launched this rebellion, not against the Queen, but against her council. So he
0: said. That old one. And
2: it, oh, that old chestnut. And it was <laughs> surely the most poorly organised rebellion in history. They stopped for lunch halfway through. I love this fact. They're they're kind of in the pub getting drunk and, oh yeah, we'd better go back to rebelling. And of course, by that time, the Queen's forces had surrounded them and, and Essex ended up in the tower and then Lost his head not long afterwards.
0: But people over the years love to build up all these kind of romantic myths around Elizabeth, don't they? I mean, one of my first exposures to her story when I was a boy was watching the private lives of Elizabeth and Essex on the TV with Betty Davis as the queen and Errol Flynn as a very dashing version of Essex. I'm not sure it's particularly historically accurate, wonderful. but I remember enjoying it.
2: I know, it's wonderful. My The first ever talk I gave was on Elizabeth in film. So I showed um, mm. excerpts from that. And also Flora Robson, I think was one of the earliest. But for yes. me, my favourite screen portrayal of Elizabeth has to be Miranda Richardson in Blackadder. Absolutely yes. love it. I think she nailed it—her <laughs> kind of fickle <laughs> nature and liking to be queen bee and all the rest of it.
0: I, I just yeah, Miranda Richardson was was fabulous. I mean, what a wonderful bit of casting that was. <laughs> but I th- I think that show Blackadder is a great example of all these different portrayals of Elizabeth. All these different images we have of her. And because so many of the aspects of her private life were fascinating, in some ways, this was the original royal soap opera. I think people can sometimes not see her in the context of what else was going on in England and in the rest of Europe. Now, you mentioned briefly in the last episode that perhaps the Elizabethan era wasn't the golden age that it's often been depicted as. So can we just get away from the fun stuff for a moment and talk about boring things like economics and international trade? Because this is going on all around her. Ordinary people are having to make a living and it wasn't always that easy, was it? So can you just talk us through what was happening on that front? Yes, absolutely. So I guess what tarnishes...
2: golden age it was a time of economic hardship there was harvest failure um in general the tudor period was known as the little ice age there were lots of Mm. climate issues but a bit different to the ones that we're experiencing today um but they did lead to to difficulties uh with the economy so there was unrest um on the other hand there was prosperity overseas because of this emerging empire that elizabeth encouraged now it was really based on privateering essentially she encouraged her adventurers the likes of of sir walter raleigh and john hawkins to really go plundering uh, spanish treasure ships and the likes and it was also the beginning of the slave trade as well and and the origins of quite a dark chapter in our history but a profitable chapter for the crown, and one that Elizabeth very much encouraged. And then another aspect to this is that after the Armada, quite famously, Elizabeth was very slow to pay her troops, and they were mm. wandering the streets, many of them begging because they were now destitute. Because Elizabeth had inherited, I think, the um, the parsimony, the meanness of her grandfather Henry the Seventh. She she was always. Very slow to pay, sometimes not paying at all. Huh. So uh, the extent to which it was a golden age, I think, is is questionable. There were some real highlights, but for ordinary people living in Elizabethan England, it certainly wasn't uh, all plain sailing.
0: Yeah, it's fine if you're a nobleman; you can wear some fancy tights and a yes. Jaunty hat. Exactly. I love... And prance that. about the place. Exactly. Whilst, uh,
2: My fun fact on the on the, wealth is that Robert Dudley, Elizabeth's great favourite, once spent more on a suit of clothes than Shakespeare spent on his new house in Stratford-on-Avon. So there you go. Best dressed man
0: at court. Yes. But if you're at the bottom of the tree, then life is, is very different.
2: Absolutely. Failed harvests. Um, were commonplace economic hardship as a result, begging on the streets. And that itself led to unrest. I mean, you do get the school of thought that says the civil war that happened 50 years after Elizabeth's death had its Mm. roots in her reign and and the sort of problems that she either pushed to one side, such as not quite resolving the religious uh, divisions, and then also the economic problems that
0: started to bubble up during her reign. When I had John Guy and Julia Fox on and talking about Henry VIII, they were very interested in the whole idea of the importance of trade with Antwerp and the Low Countries. And this seems to have got very disrupted in Elizabeth's reign in that there there are sort of armies marching about the place.
2: It did get very disrupted. Uh, this sort of Anglo-Dutch relationship was completely recast under Elizabeth because the Netherlands were divided between the, the Spanish Netherlands that remained faithful to Philip II and then the rebel provinces, as they were known, that broke away. Um and they were largely Protestant and therefore natural allies to Elizabeth. Um and please you ask me this, Charlie, because my PhD thesis was on Anglo-Dutch relations in the reign of Elizabeth I. <laughs> and funny <laughs> enough, it didn't prove a very commercial subject. Oh, Never right. written a book it- about it.
0: And it didn't put you off studying history. No,
2: it didn't. It didn't. I did very short term try to learn Dutch whilst doing that. It didn't last long. Gosh. I don't have enough phlegm. I think I, <laughs> I concluded from that. But anyway, it, the the relationship was was very different, and it did disrupt trade because, as I say, that the Netherlands were split in two, and we were only friends with half of that and we were at war with the other half and sending troops over to the Netherlands, some of them commanded by Robert Dudley, he keeps cropping up. Um, So this did have a very negative effect on the traditional trade relationship, particularly with Antwerp and it really was the trading heart of Europe, the Netherlands. So Elizabeth had to find wealth elsewhere and that's why she was so keen on the privateering um, activities of her adventurers.
0: So if you can't make money legally, just go and nick it off someone else. Yeah. And absolutely. claim you're doing your patriotic duty. <laughs>
2: yes, quite. Uh, she she had no trouble with that. She might sort of slap them on the wrist when they got back, but then uh, say, right, come on, show us what you got. <laughs> Bring me the gold. Uh, she was absolutely sponsoring
0: those voyages overseas. So I guess all that money coming in from the Americas pretty much propped up her reign. Without it, things may have gone very differently. I guess she would have had to deal with more uprisings. And as is the way of these things, they would say, we need to go back to the old ways of doing things. We need a man on the throne. We need to go back to Catholicism. Things were great when we were Catholics. And she did harden her attitude towards Catholicism later on, didn't she? Just as Mary had hardened her attitude towards Protestants.
2: Exactly. And that, and you really see a difference and a shift. Elizabeth becomes more Protestant after the Pope has excommunicated her and uh, her Catholic subjects start to get a bit less trustworthy um, and start to plot against her. And um, really, it's a a period of terror. And it could so easily have ended in the assassination of Elizabeth. Uh, There's... A brilliant book by um, Stephen Alford. He, he wrote *The Watchers*, and he starts off with a scenario that you believe is real, which is Elizabeth being assassinated as part of a Catholic plot. And it, you know, it was so finely balanced, and and it was only really thanks to Walsingham and his spy networks that Elizabeth wasn't murdered and replaced with a Catholic
0: monarch. Yeah, we had Stephen Alford on to talk about Edward the Oh, great! So he, yeah, but he wasn't actually able to talk about all the sort of spies and espionage and plotting that went on at Elizabeth's court. Although he did mention that if you put spies in the title of a history book, the publishers really like it. <laughs> now, one of the books you've written, Tracy, is Elizabeth's Women, which is kind of about the powerful women that Elizabeth surrounded herself with. And I'm interested in the idea of Elizabeth's bedchamber, not in a sort of saucy carry-on Elizabeth way, but the idea that she had this close-knit circle of women around her who were very important to her. I mean, and did they go as far as to help her in her political decision-making? How did it work exactly? There was a blurring between
2: the political and the personal in Elizabeth's court. So she was surrounded by women, actually most of the time, when she wasn't out in the Privy Council, um, her Privy Chamber, was staffed only really by women or primarily so and I hate the phrase soft power but it was kind of that <laughs> in that you know these women did have influence not officially but in reality they did because they could judge the best time to ask Elizabeth something and so they were mm. always taking bribes from uh <laughs> from male courtiers and and putting in a, in a good word on their behalf um and the fact that they spent so much time with Elizabeth, they were her confidants, that gave them power. So, um, you know, you, you can't just see it as, oh, they look after her her person. Her, mm. uh, they were her sort of intimate body servants and, and the politics was left to the men. It absolutely wasn't. There was this sort of complex interweaving of power and relationships and women had just as much agency, I think, as men in the
0: Elizabethan court. But like all of us, kings and emperors and peasants and podcasters alike, eventually things fall apart. We grow old, and we pass away. Now, remind me, how old was Elizabeth when she died? Was she in her seventies? She was sixty-nine. All right. She was sixty-nine. It's terrible. We talk about her being this rattled. What was? I know. What did the describe this crooked carcass, I think she's only four years older than me.
2: Well, the worrying <laughs> thing is you were described as ancient from the age of forty. Which I yes. hate. I know. God I know. knows. I mean, we would be freaks of nature, Charlie. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but she makes it I mean, she you know, it lived a lot longer than any of the other Tudors. Mm. But she is faced with the fact that she doesn't have an heir. Yes. And so it it must have been a massive debate at the time of who she was actually going to go for. It really
2: was. Uh, and the succession uh, every day rudely sounded in her ears, as one contemporary put it, because Elizabeth just did not want to discuss it. She knew that the minute you named your successor, then all eyes were on him or her um, and they got all the attention and all the loyalty. But this was the big fly in the ointment. I think it was personally the right decision to remain the Virgin Queen. But the cost of that was the Tudor dynasty. Uh, Elizabeth effectively condemned the Tudors to die out uh, when she herself uh, died. And so everybody was talking about who was going to succeed her. Now, the the league contender was James VI of Scotland. He was the closest blood relative, but the Scots had been barred from inheriting the English throne by Henry VIII. So it wasn't straightforward. But
0: Henry had married his sister to to a a Scottish king, which must have been a slight play of of drawing the Scots into his orbit. It was,
2: but then he promptly fell out with Scotland and was mostly at war with them. And that's (laughs) why he was so determined that no Scottish relative would take the throne of England
0: because he'd have seen that as defeat. So Elizabeth didn't really have a lot of choice. I mean, do you think she was happy with the idea of James or was it just the least worst option to go with? I
2: think possibly the least worst option because who else was there? Arbella Stuart, again, sort of from the Scottish line, but she was at least born on English soil. The Seymours mm. were still kicking about thanks to that, um, you know, the marriage of Lady Catherine Grey and yeah. her sons and their sons were still around. But really, the one with the strongest blood claim was James of Scotland. Mm. Of course, the really fascinating thing is we are told by Elizabeth's earliest biographer that she named James on her deathbed, or at least when, you know, almost with her last breath, when uh, her counselors were saying, Will it be the King of Scots, ma'am? And she drew <laughs> a crown over her head to signal her assent. The only source for that was William Camden. And the British Library has just done analysis of his original manuscript and shown that actually he never said that in the original. And only once James was king did he sort of paste over his original pages with this version that said, yes, Elizabeth left it to the King of Scots. It's all good. Uh, she did nothing of the sort. I don't think she ever did name her successor. Hmm. Fascinating.
0: I mean, it's a it's a bit like um, Daniel Craig in No Time to Die saying... I'm going to be the last, the last bond. I'm going to be yes. the one to die. Yes. Monarchs before me, they've just been replaced. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Regenerated. That's it. It's just like that. I mean, do you think there was that, that element of ego of, of kind of like, I'm the last, yeah. the last queen, the last Tudor's, none shall follow me? I think quite possibly.
2: Elizabeth was not lacking in ego. Um, I love her. She did. She very much um, had had confidence in herself as really who's going to possibly replace me. You know, I'm an impossible act to follow. Um, But um, most of her court now saw her as as an old woman who'd lost control. And they were looking forward to having a man on the throne. Mm. And honestly, talk about be careful what you wish for. James comes down and is not very kingly and not very popular very quickly uh, you know he's always fiddling with his codpiece as one rather <laughs> astonished <laughs> aghast courtier describes and it's wonderful because all of these people in england who looked forward to having a king in charge at last within weeks of elizabeth's death there was a popular ballad uh, that went um a tudor a tudor we've had stuarts enough None ever reigned like Queen Bess in
0: her rough. Excellent. I think that's a perfect way to to say goodbye to Elizabeth and the Tudors. And yeah, it'd be great saying, well, actually, they were wrong. It went wonderfully well with the Stuarts. But uh, luckily for me, it carries on being an extraordinary story. Lots (laughs) more chapters to come. So thank you once again, Tracy.
2: It's been such a pleasure. I could talk about Elizabeth till the cows come home.
0: Well, maybe you should have your own podcast called Tracy Borman talks about Elizabeth till the cows come home.
2: (laughs) There you go. The idea starts here, Charlie.
0: Thanks so much. See you next time. So if you want to read up any more about the Tudors, Tracy and the guests we've had on in the last few episodes have written so many brilliant books between them, you are spoilt for choice. Or if you want to get the wider overview of our monarchy, read Tracy Borman's Crown and Scepter, her own version of Willy Willy Harry Ste. And come back next time as James I takes the throne. And as Tracy said, everybody wishes we could have the Tudors back. Follow or subscribe to the podcast now so you don't miss it when it drops. Willie Willy Harry Stee was written and presented by me, Charlie Higson, with music by Tom Jenkins and production by Mark Jeeves. Willie Willie Harry Stee, the podcast, is the copyright of Charlie Higson, 2023.